Good morning, fellowship family and friends. Thank you so much for joining me for the Sunday morning message. We are in Revelation chapter 2. Today, if you have your Bible handy, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to specifically look at the verses uh, 8 through 11 this morning. And so go ahead and turn to those verses. I'm just thankful that you're taking this time to join me for the Sunday morning message. And and I want to dive right into the text with you today. I don't want to waste any time. Uh, I just want to jump right into this. Um, And so Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh, Hopefully you're able to find those in your text. But here we find Jesus instructing John uh, to write to the church of Smyrna. And this is what he says. He says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of our God. As we've been doing, church, let's consider this text verse by verse. And so starting with verse 8, let's look at that together. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And so just as we saw Jesus do in his introduction to the church in Ephesus, when he had John write to the church in Ephesus back at the beginning of chapter 2, we see Christ also here use phrases that describe him from the end of chapter 1. And I would encourage you to take a look back. Look back at the end of chapter 1 and see the, the phrases that are used uh, both by John and by Jesus himself to describe him. And, and here Christ takes a couple of those when he says that he's the first and the last in verse 8. And then also where he says, I'm the one who died and came to life. And later in our study this morning, we're going to see when we get to verse 10, just how significant these self-descriptive phrases are that Christ uses. Uh, We're going to see that they were very reassuring to the followers in Smyrna. But I want to first of all look at verse 9 with you. And let's, let's talk about the message of what Jesus is saying to his followers at the church in Smyrna. So Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Christ says here, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There's a lot of meat here that we need to dig into together, church. Jesus begins his message here to his followers in Smyrna by assuring them that he sees their circumstances. Now, this is an idea that we've, we've covered, we've talked about this, that Jesus is among the lampstands, that Jesus stands with his church. And so I, I don't want to take too much time with this idea again, but there's nothing 
that escapes the notice of Christ. There's nothing that he doesn't see. That, that was true for the church in Smyrna and Fellowship Baptist. That's true for us. He sees us. He sees our circumstances. He's with us. He is standing with us today. He's standing with this church. And I love what he says here to his followers. I love the statement that Jesus makes in verse 9, where he says, I know your tribulation. He says, I know your poverty. But then right away, he says, but you're rich. But you are rich. You're, you're poor, but you're rich. Now, what, what do we make of this contrast that Christ draws here? I believe that what Jesus is saying to them, I believe that what he's saying to them here is that I see your present circumstances, church, but do you see your future reality? I think that's the point that Jesus is making here to his followers in Smyrna. I see that where you're living and in your circumstances right now in your life, that you're living in poverty, and, and I see the tribulation that's happening to you, but I'm wondering if you see the future reality that is yours. In the city of Smyrna, you might live in poverty, but in my kingdom, Jesus would say to them, you're rich. You have been storing up favor. You've been storing up blessing, church. You have been storing up glory. You have been storing up true wealth in heaven. Friends, I think it's so important that you and I understand this idea, that we comprehend and we embrace this teaching of Christ. Jesus had spoken of this during his earthly ministry. This is nothing new by any means. When Christ walked the earth, this is something that he taught when he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Christ saying here? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on your true reward. This treasure will never fail you. The treasure that you can store up in heaven will never let you down. It will never, ever fail you. So why were they in poverty? Let's, let's back up and let's think about this for a minute. Why were the Christians in Smyrna, in the city, living in poverty? And, and what was the cause of their tribulation that they were experiencing in their present lives in the city. Well, a little historical background for you about Smyrna. Just like I gave you some on Ephesus last week, let's talk about Smyrna. Smyrna was a center, just like Ephesus, for emperor worship. It was a center for what was known as the imperial cult. Now, Jews were given special permission to abstain from worshiping the emperor. Why would that be? Why would Jews be given special permission to not participate in emperor worship? Rome understood, the Roman government knew that Judaism was an ancient monotheistic religion 
In other words, they only worshiped one God. And so emperor worship would be something that they would not be willing to do according to their religion. They understood this about their religion. And they also knew, Rome also knew, that there were many wealthy and powerful people who were a part of Judaism. And so Rome had established this policy of tolerance. They had established a policy of tolerating uh, the Jewish people not participating in worshiping the emperor. Basically, Rome did not want the trouble that it would have brought to enforce emperor worship on the Jewish people. And in Smyrna specifically, there was a very sizable Jewish community. And they had a very good relationship with the Roman government. Now, when early Christians were viewed as part of that Jewish community by the Roman authorities, then the Christians, our forefathers and foremothers, <laughs> our ancestors in the faith, right? They could sort of fly under the radar and avoid persecution when we were seen as part of Judaism. However, what often happened, not just in Smyrna, but around the Roman Empire, is that the synagogue leaders, the Jewish authorities, would publicly distinguish themselves from the Christian community. They would call out the Christians in their community, and, and basically they would let it be known that they were not a, not a part of Judaism and the Jewish community. And, and when this happened it, throughout the Roman Empire, but also specifically here in Smyrna for our purposes today, when that happened, Christianity began to be persecuted. It wasn't so easy to be a follower of Christ during those times. This is probably seen the clearest in an event that happened a couple of decades after John sent out the revelation. So I'm going to roll the tape forward here for you for a little bit. And we're going to talk about something that happened in Smyrna, uh, probably about 20 years after John sends out the revelation. According to early church history, the apostle John himself, our author of revelation, uh, he, John himself had discipled a follower of Christ named Polycarp man named Polycarp, and he discipled him and he grew him up in the faith, and then he ordained him as the overseer or the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And so Polycarp was in charge of the church after John had passed away. Now Polycarp is the bishop of this church. And the Jewish leaders in Smyrna in the early second century, so again, probably about 20 years after the revelation is written, the Jewish leaders in Smyrna stirred up the Roman authorities against the Christians, against the Christian community. They not only had distanced themselves from them and said, they're not a part of us, but they, they kind of agitated the situation in the city and they stirred up the Roman authorities against the Christian community and especially Polycarp, their leader, their shepherd. Well, the end of the story is that Polycarp is martyred. He's executed by Rome. He's burned at the stake for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
And it's very clear from our passage this morning that persecution was already happening when revelation, when the revelation was sent to the church in Smyrna. The Christians there were already being persecuted. The, the Jewish authorities had already started speaking out against the church. In verse 9, Jesus also assures them that he sees the slander of those who say they are Jews. Now, this is important. The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Well, let's talk about that word slander, first of all. The Greek word that's used here is the word blasphemia. It's translated in probably in your Bible and most Bibles into the English word slander in verse 9. This is, of course, if you just listen to the sound of the word when I say it, blasphemia, this is, of course, where we get our English word blasphemy. Blasphemia is any speech that denigrates. It's speech that is defamatory. It's disrespectful. It's abusive language. So the question that we need to ask is disrespectful and abusive toward who? I think that in this passage, it's often assumed by people who read it that it is the Christians in Smyrna that are being slandered here. And for good reason. I think the context, and also if you do a little study and or just think about what I just shared with you about Polycarp and what's going on in this community, uh, but the context of early church history would argue that indeed the Christian community is being slandered. And so when Jesus says here, the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, certainly part of this slander that's happening is towards the Christian communities. The, the Jewish authorities uh, most likely were speaking out against the church. However, I think it's also likely that Jesus is saying that these Jewish authorities are also guilty of blasphemy, blasphemia, slander against God. I mean, this is certainly the most common way that this Greek word blasphemia is used in Scripture. The most common way that this word is used is slander toward God. And so I think what Christ is saying here is that they had, these Jews, had blasphemed God in that they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and now they were standing in opposition to his church. And so what does Jesus say about them? He says that they're a synagogue of Satan. Their synagogue is no longer a Jewish synagogue, but now their synagogue in Smyrna is a synagogue of Satan. Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah were apostates from the true faith of Israel. I believe that's the point that Christ is making. Jews that had rejected the Messiah that had been sent to them by God, Jesus himself, had apostated from Israel's true faith. What did Jesus say to the authorities during his earthly ministry? Again, let's 
just for a moment, go back to the gospel, specifically John chapter 8. And, and here we find Jesus addressing the Jewish authorities. And this is what he says. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. What's the point Jesus is making here? True Jews have received him as their Messiah, but there were many others who had hardened their hearts to him. Certainly these Jewish authorities here in John chapter 8 that Jesus is addressing, the Jewish authorities who were going to nail him to the cross, they had rejected him as the promised Messiah. And now notice that how Jesus encourages his followers in Smyrna. Notice how he encourages them next in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I just for a moment, I, I, I have to go down this imaginary road with you for a minute. We, we have to um, think about this in the context. What if we were one of the Christ followers of Smyrna. Just for a moment, slip into their sandals, just for a second. You, you go to a worship gathering and find out that the Apostle John, who you know is in exile on the island of Patmos, just off the coast of where you live, and you know that John is there and imprisoned for his faith and his leadership of your church, that he has sent out a letter and that this letter has been traveling through the cities, and you're actually city number two on the list. It's already been to Ephesus, and, and now it's coming to your church in Smyrna. And you know that that letter is going to be read. And so, of course, as you're sitting there in the congregation, and the elder, one of the elders of your church, begins to read the Revelation. And he reads through Revelation chapter 1. Of course, they didn't have the chapter uh, markings back then, but that's beside the point. He reads through all that content and he gets into chapter two and he reads uh, the, the message to the church in Ephesus. And you're like, oh, wow, boy, that's some heavy stuff. And then he says this, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, part of this letter, I mean, certainly all of this letter is to me and to my congregation and to the people in my church. But you realize that now Jesus has a message specifically for you, specifically for your church, specifically for your congregation. And then the church elder who's reading aloud says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. What are you feeling now? Oh, man. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe the elder skips some lines. Maybe he's actually talking to the church in Pergamum right now. No, no, he's, he's talking to you. And then the church elder continues to read, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You begin to look around the congregation, your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Is it going to be that guy? Is it going to be her? Is it going to be me? The devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. I mean, they must have wondered why. Why is this going to happen? And maybe after the letter is read, you sit, you talk about it, and the elders of the church begin to teach about the story of Job and how God had given Satan freedom to harm Job in so many ways. But you wonder, why is this going to happen? I, I mean, can we imagine what it must have felt like to be in the original audience and to hear these words from Christ? Was it going to be a literal 10 days? That's one question I had when I began to study this text. Was it going to be a literal 10 days? I suppose that's possible. I think it's possible that Jesus is saying here that for, a, for 10 days, for a literal 10 days, right, this, is, this time of persecution and suffering is going to happen. But again, I'll remind you of my commitment to you guys as we study in Revelation. It's always to just admit it when I'm not sure about something. Well, here I am saying I'm not sure. Uh, my answer is I don't know. I don't know if it was a literal 10 days. Maybe it was a literal 10 days that they were going to face tribulation. It seems more likely to me that this is symbolic that this is one of the many times in the book of Revelation where we see symbolism. The, the number 10, the number 10 is used so often throughout the Old Testament. I was going to bore you with so many facts right now. I was going to bore you with so many passages of where the number 10 is used. I'm sure you can just off the top of your, your head think of many times where that number is used. It, it's an important number in the Old Testament, like 7 and 12 and 40. You see the number of 10 often. Here's what I think the important thing is for us to see here. Jesus was preparing his followers for a season of suffering. He was giving them a heads up. He was helping them to understand that following him means that at some times we're going to walk through a season of suffering, of persecution. And I think that's what he's saying here. And, and then Jesus says to them, my expectation of you is that you will be faithful unto death. Jesus even implies here that death may be the outcome, at least for some of his followers in Smyrna. That faithfulness to him might actually lead them to their own deaths. But he gives a promise here as well. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Do we see now why Jesus identified himself to his followers in Smyrna the way he does back in verse 8? You see, this isn't just a, an introduction. He didn't just pick a couple phrases from the end of chapter 1. He picked the right phrases from the end of chapter 1 in his introduction to this church in Smyrna. You see, Jesus is, as verse 8 says, he is the first and the last. He is the one who died and came to life. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. All of history is moving towards his determined end. 
Nothing happens that's outside of his control. And so these Christians in that congregation that now have worried looks on their faces and they're looking at each other, who's going to be thrown in prison among us? Who might possibly die among us? His followers didn't need to fear persecution. His followers don't need to fear martyrdom if it comes. His followers do not need to fear death. Why? Because he died and came to life. Because he's alive, because he has risen, all will be well. They will rise as well. And I'm sure that this was reassuring to them, encouraging them to stay the course in following after Christ faithfully. I mean, this is what the Apostle Paul had laid out so beautifully for the church in Corinth. He had laid out this argument so clearly. And bear with me as I walk you through 1 Corinthians 15, this this text, where Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What is the point, the beautiful point that Paul is making in this passage? It's simply this. Death is not the end. It's only the beginning. It is only the beginning of something beautiful for those who are trusting in Christ. And church, then we come to the final verse in our study today. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, coming back to our central text. Jesus says here to the church in Smyrna, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do you remember the two questions that we're going to ask as we study through these letters to the seven churches? We're going to ask the same two questions when we come to the time of application of all seven of these churches. Here are the questions, just to remind you. What is the will of Jesus for his church? And then the second one, what characteristics set the church apart from all other organizations and movements? We saw with the church of Ephesus that the will of Jesus for his church is that they love God and they love others. That the characteristic that sets the church apart from all other organizations, all other movements is radical love for God and radical love for
her people. That's the characteristic that we saw last week with the Church of Ephesus. Now, what do we see here as Christ writes to the church in Smyrna? I think it comes down to two words, two little words in verse 10. Be faithful. Jesus is saying to this church, we're about to go through a time of intense persecution. Be faithful. I think the key word here for us is faithfulness. It's interesting to me that they are in the midst of tribulation and poverty, is the way Christ puts it. When the letter is sent to them, they are currently being slandered by the Jewish authorities. And Christ gives them a heads up that they're about to enter into a season of even more intense suffering, more intense persecution under the Roman government. And did you notice that there was no reprimand from Jesus in this letter? I find that to be very interesting. There's only commendation in this letter. He warns them. He, he tells them what's about to happen. But did you notice that as we studied through it, there was no reprimand to the church in Smyrna? He only commends them. Jesus tells them that they're actually rich. They're actually rich. They were storing up treasure in heaven. The implication here is that they were rich in things that truly mattered. When I was in seminary, I wrote a, a paper for a church history class I was taking. It was about this, this time period, early church history. Early church history. And I entitled the, the paper, Purified by Persecution. It's an interesting trend in Christian history. With persecution comes purity in the church. The way you see it on the screen, persecution purifies the church. It's also an interesting trend in church history that affluence pollutes the church. Affluence within the church tends to have the opposite effect of persecution. It, it tends to create a church that is polluted by the values of the world. Bible scholar Craig Keener comments on this idea, and, and he writes this. He says, suffering has a way of reminding us which things in life really matter, forcing us to depend radically on God, and thus purifying our obedience to God's will. Now, I have to ask you, what have you experienced more of in your life? Persecution or affluence? Well, I'm the one with the microphone, so I guess I'll share. I have certainly experienced affluence more in my life than I have persecution. I mean, church, the closest thing I've ever really gotten to persecution for my faith is maybe being in a business meeting or a government meeting and someone giving me an awkward look across the table because they know I'm a Bible-banging pastor. I don't know that I would really call that true persecution. An awkward silence, uh, maybe a snicker or a laugh. I, you see, I just can't put that in the same category as the persecution that our 
predecessors in our faith endured. I can't put that in the same category that of, of those of our brothers and sisters around the planet right now in the year 2020 who are experiencing true persecution for their faith. I think I've mostly known affluence in my walk with Christ. And, and I'll be honest with you, it scares me a little bit because of this reality. Let me back up to it again so you see it again. Persecution purifies the church. Affluence tends to pollute the church with the values of the world. So I'm stuck on this point in my own spiritual journey because like you, I'm sure you would say, as I would say, I don't really want persecution. I mean, should we, should we seek it? I mean, if that's true, that persecution brings purity and affluence brings pollution, should we then seek persecution? No, I don't think we should. I don't think our goal should be to be persecuted by our, for our faith. I, I think we actually should be quite thankful that we live in a nation where we experience religious liberty, where we still have the freedom to worship God publicly. And so we shouldn't seek persecution. There was actually a time in our church history where people were doing that. Uh, not too long after all of this that we're studying, people began to seek martyrdom and they began to seek persecution. And the church actually had to write something very strong that said, hey, if you're seeking to die for Christ, then it's not really martyrdom. Persecution isn't something you go looking for. Should we desire suffering in order to be purified? But here's what we need to do, friends, you and me both. What we need to do is we need to still seek the fruits of this. We need to still depend radically on God, Fellowship Baptist Church. It, it may be true that persecution brings that, but the, I don't think that's the only way we can get there. I think we could still choose radical dependence on God. Persecution might naturally bring obedience to God's will, but I don't think it's the only way we can get there. I think, church, we can still choose to be fully obedient to the will of God, either in a culture of persecution or in a culture of affluence. And so that's my challenge to you today. Just like we said, when we say the church of Ephesus, the characteristic of a church that separates it from every other organization and movement is love, radical love for God and for people. I think when we look at this letter to the church of Smyrna, that we come away realizing that the characteristic that separates the church, that makes it entirely different from any other organization and movement, faithfulness. And so let's be fully obedient to God's will. Let's be radically dependent on God. Let's be committed, brothers and sisters, to living for Christ, and if necessary, to die for Christ. I wonder 
have we embraced Jesus' tougher teachings in the Gospels? It's an interesting study. Sometimes read through the Gospels and see when people left Jesus. Look for the times where he loses the crowd. It happens when he begins to say some things that were difficult for them to hear. And I, I just wonder, have we fully embraced these? Because here we are living in our culture of affluence, and it would be really easy to miss some of these tougher teachings. Let me just share one with you as I close this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple." must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful Generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This isn't an easy teaching of Jesus. This is one that makes us think. This is one that challenges us to the core of our hearts and souls. Will we be obedient to Christ no matter what? Fellowship Baptist, my challenge to all of us this morning is let's deny ourselves. Let's pick up the cross. Let's follow hard after Christ, losing our lives for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. May we fellowship by the grace of God and the grace of God alone be faithful in the days to come. God bless you, brothers and sisters. I'm praying for you. I'm looking forward to very soon being able to be with you in person. For our congregation to come back uh, together again, to be able to talk with each other more, to encourage each other more. Uh, until then, know that I'm praying for you. Have a wonderful week.